Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Welcome, DBP listeners. Today, we are talking about a pretty unique story. Um, This episode is titled Wine and War, and we are going to be talking about the book Wine and War and what that was about, and we are drinking Chateau German. (laughs) I'm sure it's pronounced much more. Chateau German. 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 And Jamie's going to go ahead and pop this open. Um, We are pairing this wine with our topic because Chateau German, or German, is a French wine. It's a Bordeaux. But it... It's called German. That was a and very soft pop. I'm the sorry. story of Wine and War is about the French and the Nazis and the battle for France's wine. So we thought this would be a perfect um, wine pairing, given that it's French and it's called Chateau German. 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 It is a really interesting color. It's, it's pretty dark. Yeah, it's pretty dark and it's kind of got a... Um, this is a 2014... Yeah, it's, it's Castillon Cote de Bordeaux, and it, it looks older than that even, I think, from the I, color. Well, it's not like oranging yet, so I think we're we're still okay, but, yeah, but I agree. It does have like a weird tint to it that it's hard to put my finger on. If you look at the rim, you can kind of see that um, it's starting to have that slightly more brick yeah, color. All right. All right, Cheers. Well, cheers. It's a little smoky. This is interesting. I think so, it needs to breathe. I think it needs to breathe too, but while well, we're letting it breathe. It's 70% Merlot, 20% Cabernet Sauvignon, 10% Cab Franc. And this is a, you mentioned Bordeaux. So mm-hmm. this is a Bordeaux. This is a right bank Bordeaux. Right bank typically has more Merlot than Cab Sav. Left bank is the opposite and has more Cab Sav to Merlot. Now, not, they don't always combine Cab Franc, Petit Bordeaux, Malbec in Bordeaux. They don't always do it. Sometimes it's just the two. Yeah. Um, it really depends on the vintage, depends on the winery. Um, it depends on it depends on a shit ton of things, okay, to be honest. Yeah. So, th- but this actually has three. So I was surprised to see three of those board, red Bordeaux grapes. Um, Merlot's going to make it a little bit smoother. Merlot is going to make it less tannin, higher alcohol. This one's 13% ABV. So nothing that's like breaking your throat. Your throat. <laughs> or stomach or <laughs> mind. It is actually going to have more of those mellow flavors um, and notes. Um, blackberry, blueberry, plum a little bit. Um, but from France, it's it's going to be pretty smooth. It's supposed to be. I... <laughs> I didn't mean it like it's not. I it's it's a smooth wine. You you're picking up on something, right? I, yeah, I don't know what it is. It's like it's, it's not almost tannic. like potpourri. <clears throat> it's not there's an acidity. This is a much more acidic than I would have expected. There's an aftertaste that I can't tell what it is. Yet. I know. I I, I I feel the same thing. I wonder. Like I said, I think it just has to breathe a little bit. Maybe we should pour this through uh, an aerator. Okay. Okay. Everybody hold one moment. So we're doing a side-by-side. We're going to have some that's aerated, using a little pop-in aerator, and what I originally poured. So we'll see if that changes anything. A good science experiment, Sarah. Yeah. Good idea. It really is. Good idea. 
Science experiment. All right. Let's cheers again for the aerated. <laughs> it's a lot more floral uh, on the aromas. Yeah. That in the aftertaste has dissipated. I feel like it's a drastically different wine. 100%. I feel like I just picked up more tannin. There's still a very, it's a pretty high acidity wine. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense to me. But. Oh, it's completely different. All right. You guys. I had a little yeah, bit This is why you should me. do this at home. And it just means that you need to wash one more glass. Yeah. The one that's been aerated has more, I feel like, purpley. It's almost like, um, God, it's, it is smoother, more floral, more fragrant. Let's just see if that one improves and becomes yeah. the same. We will. Do you think it's like somewhat psychosomatic since we see it in two different glasses? No, I don't because okay. these glasses also suck compared to the other ones. <laughs> They're, I actually like the one that you have. Thank you. It's like a little coupe almost. Thank you. Okay. What else do we know about this wine? Okay. Jamie. This wine, this wine is, I feel like we're doing the WSET. Mm-hmm. Castillon Cote de Bordeaux. I'm probably butchering, but deal with it. <clears throat> it is a larger region within the right bank. Okay. Um, it is directly above the Dordogne River on a map that I could see. And so it's going to have a lot more of those like coastal, not maritime technically because it's not like on an actual big body of water. Right. But it is going to have some more of that, I think, cooler air, you know, dealing with that during the summer. This wine is also called a Grand Vin de Bordeaux, which... I've learned, means that it is the best ranked wine according to the producer themselves. So that is not a regulated term that's on your bottles. Uh, That is something that each chateau, each wine producer can choose to put it on any of their bottles. And it typically, it can definitely result in higher prices. I'm not sure how much you paid for this one. I think it was only like $16 or something. That's it? Okay. Wow, that was really cheap actually. Yeah, on the bottle it says it's rated 90 points from wine enthusiasts. Impressive. According to Vintage Charts, so that's something that I really never paid attention to, but this is a 2014, and Wine Spectator, among other resources, produce these vintage charts. And so it's for France, it's for Australia, it's for, you know, by varietal too, which is great. That's awesome. And this one actually says that for Bordeaux, the 2014 is recommended to either drink or hold. Okay. Which means that you... can do just fine by itself, like nice and young, or it could be something that could potentially have some ageability there. My thought is that if it says drink or hold, maybe this is not one of those that you hang on to for a long, extended amount of time. However, this is five years old, and Wine Spectre says, a good spring was followed by a gray, humid summer with slightly more rainfall than on the left bank. So, I mean, I think that there that makes sense. Humidity, I think... Especially when you have more rainfall, because this is more rainfall, it can enlarge those grapes, which Mm -hmm. could potentially Mm -hmm. dilute some of the flavors. Right. So I don't know if that's, you know, a thought process. Yeah. But anyway, what else you got? Let's see. Do we know anything about the family who produced this or no? We do know a little bit about them. It is owned by Bernadette Four and Alain Aubert. Aubert. Mm. It's one of five wineries owned by them. And their daughters actually oversee these vineyards, winemaking, and marketing. Oh. Yeah. Family-run business. I mean, much like other French vineyards, Uh they tend to stay in the family. This is why we should have been born to the French or the Italians. Yep. (laughs) And actually, 
as you were talking about this wine and when to drink it, they do recommend drinking it from 2019. So we're kind of right there. The, the vines of Chateau German were planted during the 18th century. Holy smokes. I know. That means the 1700s. Yep. Um, I always need to remind myself that it's like the uh, decade before or the century before. Right. You mean the century after the year. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Problems. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely improving. It is, yes. Yeah. Um, this winery, or these vineyards, was the theater of major events during the French Re- Revolution in 1789. Some of the French families that were actually serving actually took refuge here at Chateau uh, German. Yeah, and they di- I think they died there. Ooh. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. So sad. That's really sad. I know. But I'm sure that that was something that was very common back then, too. You know, going through all of these wars, because is that, Mm -hmm. I'm terrible, but is that the Revolutionary War? (laughs) We're not history buffs, (laughs) by any means. But we are going to become history buffs with the Wine and War book. Yeah, okay. So I think we should just get into that. Let's get into that, because, Sarah, you've been talking about this book for a long time, and I recently read a book, or am currently reading, I won't deny that I have not finished it yet, it's called Around the World in 80 Wines. Okay. And this dude, um, Mike, who's the author of that, and I follow his blog mm-hmm. online. But he mentioned um, he mentioned this book and was like raving about it. Like absolutely mm-hmm. raving about it. So I think that we, you know, it piqued my interest and I know that you were reading it. So can you explain why you wanted to read it? I mean, I know it's wine related. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I came across it. I think that it's... Obviously, it's wine-related. But more than that, it it was such a huge part of World War II that I don't think many people know about. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I'm not a history buff. I'm not, like, into that, especially, like, World War I and II. Um, But this was very intriguing to me, and I thought it'd be a good way for me to learn more about that time. And also, you know, focusing on the wine part, I, I, I had no idea that that was even part of war. Yeah, you know? I think that, I mean, it's interesting because I didn't really realize it either. And then we've watched a couple films, like I think Psalm 2 uh, touched on it a little bit, just like uh-huh. a touch. Um, and then also when we talked about Chateau Moussard, yeah. we learned a little bit about what it's like there and how they've had these civil wars, which are, you know, resulting in some issues with some of the winemaking pra- practices. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I too didn't really realize it. And so when you mentioned this book... I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. We got a lot to pick up on. So it did take me a while to get through it, and I'll talk about why. I think okay. the writing is unique, how they wrote the story. Okay. But um, it's written by Don and Petey Kladstrup. Mm-hmm. It's a journalist and TV correspondent and his wife who wrote this. And basically, it's the story of these five prominent wine families in France during the Nazi occupation and how they managed to maintain their livelihood and their stocks of wine. I mean, it is shocking to me that that all this happened, and I feel like none of us really know about it. Yeah. The families that they talk about, and it just focuses on five. I mean, it doesn't mean that only five were impacted. Exactly. No, there were several more. The Druhins of Burgundy, the Hugels of Alsace, the Huets of Loire Valley, and then the Danana Courts of Champagne. Okay. And uh, I'm going to not say this right. It is the Mielhees of Bordeaux. I don't know how you say that I don't that know how you say that um, Anyways, they it's talk French. about those. They, yeah, they talk about those families. So a little bit of background, okay? 
1940 is when France fell to the Nazis, and the German army immediately began a campaign to basically pillage the wine of France. Those fuckers. It's because they knew the French made better wine. This is true. So there was a huge French resistance, and um, the winemakers were part of that. They tried to oppose this. But no one's really heard these stories, and that's where this book comes in. So it's a lot of untold stories that are now finally making their way into the hands mm-hmm. of... Basically, I imagine that this this book would be for wine buffs and history buffs. Yeah, or I mean either. You know, you don't yeah. have to be one or the other, honestly. If you like... I mean, you can be one or the other, but you don't have to be both is what I'm, I'm just, saying. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking that like that's how most people would come mm-hmm. across this mm-hmm. book in general. Exactly. It's not one of those random, like, at the end of, like, the aisle promoting. No, no, no. I think it's a pretty popular book. I agree. Um, so it talks about all these French wine producers who took heroic and daring measures to save their crops, their bottles, I mean, everything, their livelihood, yeah. as the Germans kind of closed in on them. So a little bit more background before World War II, France had already been going through a lot with their vineyards because... They had phylloxera, which mm-hmm. attacked their vines in the 19th century. And after that, they had World War I. Um, and the World War I battles ruined several of the vineyards, especially in Champagne. There was chemicals that poisoned the soil for several, several years. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And then there was the Great Depression, where winemakers couldn't afford to buy grapes from the growers. And several wine growers went bankrupt. And oh then wine production fell actually 40% in Burgundy during that time. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Wait, so was the Great Depression felt by France the same one that we felt? Yes. I believe it started in the United States in 1929 and then spread to the rest of the world. Okay. Yeah. So they were already dealing with all this stuff before World War II that they were recovering from. Yeah. So World War II, like I said, started in 1940. With everything that happened, wine production sharply dropped from 1940 to 1942. Well, consider that most of the people who are running the vineyards, I'm just guessing, maybe you can confirm from the book, but most of the people running the vineyards are going to be the men, and the men have to go off to war. Well, it's not just that. There are several other reasons, and this is kind of the stuff we're going to get into. Okay. But it dropped from 49 million to 35 million. So here's the reasons why. Okay. So one, Germans were requisitioning all the good wine. So the restaurants had to limit the amount of wine they served to their own customers in France because oh the Germans were basically taking all the good wine. They were like, no, you're only allowed one glass. Yep. Winemakers couldn't get to transport their wine because the Germans seized their trucks and gas was rationed, so they couldn't get their wine anywhere anyways. Well, and then here's one of the biggest things. The growers were ordered to distill part of their wine into fuel and industrial alcohol, solvents, antifreeze, and then the Germans were taking some of it too as a basis for explosives. So wine did all of that? Yeah. So distilling it into, you know, all these other things that you can do with alcohol. So those who produced more than 5,000 hectoliters of wine had to distill half their harvest for these purposes. Then you talk about, like you said, you have all your people that are going to war. But also you have no one to oversee anything, no one to tend the vines. Well, that's what I mean. You have no... So they were copper sulfate was rationed that they ran out of that and that is something 
that um, they used to tend the vines to to help with production and things like that. Oh, um, I was going to say, I don't really know what copper sulfate is. Yeah. Okay. So there is a lot of reasons why production dropped so significantly. Those Germans. Yeah. No, it's it's rough. Um, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm part German, so it's... I'm married to I'm a not German. Trying. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not trying to be like <laughs> anti-German, um, just anti-Nazi. <laughs> I'll say those uh, Nazis. That's what I'll say now. Okay. Okay. So all of this is going on. The Germans, the evil Germans, right, are basically wanting all... They're, they're taking over some of these wineries. They're taking over some of these vineyards. Some of them are saying that, you know, some promised that none of the wine was going to get touched and that wasn't true. They were pillaged. Like a lot of a lot of them were pillaged and the Germans just drank all the wine that they could find. And so people knew this was coming. So they had to figure out ways to hide their wine. And you're, it's just like the clock is ticking. You're just like, oh my God, they're going to come. They're going to come. They're going to come. I got to figure this shit out. Yeah. So they became resourceful? Is that? So yes, they did. Okay. So these are the things that they did. A lot of them made false walls in their cellar, hiding their most delicious, best vintages. Sounds like prohibition. Yeah. They would take dust from old carpets and collect them and put them on cheap bottles to make them look older. What? No way. Yeah. And then when they made these false walls, in order to make them look older, they would take spiders and have them make these cobwebs over these walls to make them look older. One owner actually spread rat droppings all over her house so the Germans <sighs> wouldn't take, like, come and occupy that one. And they actually didn't because they saw that. Oh my that. God. Yep. Do you remember which family that was? Uh, I do not. Okay. Um, I actually don't think it's one of those main families. Oh, okay. Um, Jesus, that's crazy. The copper, like I said, was taken by the Nazis. So one young vineyard man, and this was the Mielhe family, okay, um, turned his barn into a chemistry lab to try and create copper sulfate to help treat the vineyards. Was he successful? He was, but he had to stop because... So he was really young. I think he was only like 16. And his father needed all this... Like he needed this help because of what was going on. And so he basically did this and he was helping run the vineyard. And the Nazis actually came and occupied the winery. Oh, shit. And so he had to do it at, in the middle of the night in a barn. And he almost got caught once. And so <gasps> he stopped at that point. But that's that that happened. Oh, my God. Um, Haute-Brion, which is a famous... Oh, my God. That's like a top-notch Bordeaux yep. producer. Their vineyard was turned into a rifle range by the Germans. So, I mean, that's kind of crazy um but all these things that happened like all these things that people were trying to do to protect their wine some of them buried their bottles in the vineyards so the first thing that the nazi leader hermann goring did in paris right at the beginning when they occupied france he's a nasty fuck by the way yep (laughs) he uh drove to a famous restaurant to drink like an amazing vintage and he was told they were sold out and he checked their cellar and he didn't find anything. So he was like, okay, I guess they're telling the truth. But they weren't. <gasps> they were hiding it on, behind a fake wall, like a foot away from where he was. No shit. Mm-hmm. He, they must have been one of the first ones to do that then. Because I'm sure that they got clued in later to, throughout the war. Like, oh, these false walls, these mm-hmm. false floors. I mean, that's... They had to imagine, like, the false walls and false floors, too. Because... That's how people were hiding 
Jews like during well, that time too. So that that had to become something that was a little bit more. Also, they had experience with this. Remember, they had World War One. That's true. So they had experience mm-hmm. with this. And then in talking about the, the Jews, there was actually one of these families that was hiding a Jewish family in their, one of their vineyards. Wow. Yeah. They talk about that in the book too. Wow. And kind of that whole story. So a lot of things that were going on. One of the main things they talk about also in the book is these Weinfurters. I'm saying that wrong. Weinfurters. There you go. They're yeah. German wine merchants. And the French nicknamed them this. They were sent by Germany to buy as much good wine as they possibly could. To buy it? Yes. And then resell it it at a large profit. Oh. (laughs) I was like, at least they bought it. So that's part of the reason why the French weren't allowed to sell some of their wine to their own people. They were just trying to sell this to other parts of the world, Germany was, and make all this money. Okay. Also, they wanted it for themselves. So these were, they were basically bureaucrats. Um... They oversaw Hitler's attempts to plunder French wine territory and help pay for the Nazi war effort because wine was basically a commodity and France had more of it than anyone else and Mm -hmm. they had the best of it. Yep. So they talk about these people throughout the whole book. And the thing is about these people is they were well respected in the sense that like some of them had been doing business with France for years in a legal way before the war. So they were like friends with these people. So a lot of them actually were trying to have both interests at heart because they figured once the war's over, they don't want to be They don't hated. want to ostracize it. Yeah, exactly. But then there was other ones that were a little more strict okay. and that were more hated and things like that. So they talk a lot about those people in the book as well, which is really interesting. So sorry, really quick. Did you know you didn't know a lot about like the history of this before you started no, reading the book? No, right? nothing. Okay. And you said it was a little challenging to get through. I mean, it's not a very long book. Uh, you know why it's challenging to get through? And I, I, I read some book reviews because I wanted, after I read this, to see what other people thought. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of good book reviews. And it is a good book, so it deserves those good book reviews. But there was one or two I saw that kind of said the same thing. Mm-hmm. They jump around so much from story to story uh, that you are like, wait, which story are they talking about here again? Because, like, especially if you're not reading it in one sitting. Yeah, that's difficult. They, like, they jump around with these families and you have to, like, be like, well, which... And that's why it's hard for me even now to remember, like, which family did what happen to. Yeah. Because they, they like, start, you know, with one person and then, you know, then they they go through all these other things, all these different chapters, and they go back to this story and you're I mean, like, it's one thing if you, it, like, there are ways about it. I mean, talking from, like, a, a reader's perspective, there are ways about it that you can do it to make it easier for your reader to follow, yeah. right? Consider how you title things. You don't just t- number the chapters. You have a specific title or, like, and they who do. it's by. But also, I mean, it reminds me when I was reading, trying to read The Time Traveler's Wife. I could not keep my shit together. Yeah. And so I just, I ended up giving up reading the book because... I could not figure out what, when we were going a flashback, when we were jumping forward, all this back and forth. It's like you had to like pick up context clues. And Mm -hmm. I suppose in that book, I was not picking up context clues. So that can be challenging. So I guess I understand why. It also is like very deep information, I would assume, that they're sharing. Yeah. Which can make it harder to process. It's heavier material, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, these authors did a great job. They actually sat down with a lot of these people. So they did a lot of um, interviewing. 
They like sometimes they were saying it was really hard because some of the people they were supposed to interview, they would have an interview set up and then like they'd get a notific- notification that this person died. Oh my god. Yeah. Could you imagine? Isn't that it's crazy? It's like if only you scheduled it a week before. <laughs> not don't mean to laugh. It's not funny. It's and sad. then a lot of the really old people don't want to talk about it because it's hurtful. It's, it's hard. very hard to like relive all of that. Yeah. And also they're like it's so long ago I don't remember you know and then the younger people are like well I was just a kid you know so they have a harder time with that well and they also probably have tried to ignore some of it mm-hmm. and and again try to paint it in a different way so they don't recall all of the facts so they actually interviewed they they talk a little bit in the introduction about how they were interviewing Gaston Huet Okay. Um, and he... And that was the one from the Lower Valley, I think. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Exactly. He brings out this bottle that is, like, covered in dust and looks super old, and it was gold in color. So the authors guessed 1976, and it was actually in 1947. Holy shit. I think it was a, a, a Vouvray. Which um, is Chenin Blanc. Mm-hmm. And he said it was the greatest wine he'd ever made. What? Wait, 1947 is after the war, right? Isn't that after D-Day? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, yeah, because they probably got all of our ship back together. <laughs> and they could properly do their jobs because right. they weren't worrying about being bombed or being taken over. And, you know, they could pay, like, the right amount of attention to winemaking techniques. So get this. Okay. So he was in his 80s at this time when they were interviewing him. Okay. So they asked him if he had ever tasted anything better. And he said only one time. When he was a prisoner of war in Germany during World War II. And then he tells this story. And there's a whole chapter in the story about this. So he was imprisoned for five years um, as a POW. Uh He was trying to raise the spirits of all the rest of the POWs. So he decided that he had some sort of blackmail on like one of like the, some of the supervisors or soldiers or whatever. Like the Germans? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So somehow they, they had these like tickets or something that they could used to get things from home like they could only like get like let's say they had three tickets they could only like use those for like three it could be anything oh it's like a commissary thing like yeah people who are like a commissary excuse me yeah exactly um yeah so then you like store up these like funds or whatever and then you can use them to buy whatever you want essentially well you can use them to allow things to be sent to you from your from home so anyways he somehow got them agree agreed for them to have a wine grand celebration in the camp during the war yes in the pow camp and they said that that would be fine each but they would have to like use their tickets or whatever to get the wine so their family would have to be like sending them wine now imagine how hard that is because one so many reasons there's so many reasons (laughs) like that that's difficult i can't even imagine the logistics about it yeah, I know. So it's it became this like they planned this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and it was like the one thing they were looking forward to. Like every it was like huge. Like some people were like recreating a wine press and others like everyone had a job to make this for this celebration. It was like the only thing that kept their spirits up. Wait, I'm sorry. They were making their own wine? No, no, no. They were oh. they were making uh they oh. Oh. They, they were, were making a model of a wine press, like Got just it. as like oh, part okay. of the celebration. I was like, "What? No, 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 no! Well, they don't have any grapes or." Anything. I was like, "I'm not sure where they're getting everything that they need." But. No, so okay. they calculated that if they had 700 bottles, that would allow for one glass of wine per prisoner. 
So people were asking, like, trying to get, like, three bottles from home. Let's do math for a second. You just say 700 bottles? Yeah. 700, if you assume that there are five bottles. You mean five glasses? Five glasses in a bottle. That's that's 3,500 POWs. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. I'm just thinking. Yeah, and they don't tell you how many, but I'm Yeah. Sure. Wow. So they only actually ended up having 600. So everyone really got a really small glass of wine. I'm sure it tasted like heaven, though. So this is one of the quotes. This evening we will give us time to recall in glory in one of France's purest treasures, our wine, and to alleviate the misery with which we have had to live for so long. A party to celebrate wine? No, it is not just that. It is also a celebration of us and how we have survived. With this little glass of wine that we are going to drink together tonight, we will savor not only a rare fruit, but also the joy of a satisfied heart. Aww. Yeah. Anyways, that's what he's talking about when they were interviewing him. So that was the best wine that he's ever had. Yeah. I'm sure, because he'd gone so long without it, and it was like the biggest treat it, that he's probably ever had because yeah. God only knows like what occurred in those POW camps. No, you really don't. And they also like did entertainment. So they had people doing skits um, that were depicting life in the vineyards. It actually raised like people were like cracking up. Like it was just like it, this, this is, they talk about this so much because it was like the one thing that people had to look f- for something to look forward to and the thing that kept them going. Yeah. I thought that that was a pretty fascinating story. Yeah. So some other like interesting stories that were part, and I, I'm going to tell you my favorite later, but I first want to talk about this one. Okay. <laughs> um, there was a famous Bordeaux negociant and okay. restaurateur named Louis Eschenauer. Okay. Okay. Who was actually, after the war was done, he lost his rights as a French citizen because he was found guilty of collaboration. What? Yes. Um, because they said he was basically too friendly with the Germans during the war and that he collaborated with them and they, he didn't follow the rules in terms of like basically, he did not protect the, fr- the, the they France's he wine. The he didn't right have things. France's wine interest at heart is what they claim claim okay but here's the thing is is that he had a cousin who was a german officer commanding the city's port and because of his friendship with his cousin he convinced him to not destroy the port when the germans retreated so he kind of saved that but they still that sort of went unnoticed yeah they still felt like he was a collaborator and i think that he was actually not a great person from the other things that I was reading. Okay. But all I know from that standpoint is what the book was kind the of rest, The rest of it, that single action did not overcome all of the other felt betrayals. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's a tough spot. I mean, it's one thing to say like, well, you didn't burn everything. They didn't burn everything. So, I mean, we've at least got mm-hmm. our fucking livelihood still. Right. We've got mm-hmm. our homes. We've got our businesses. Or I guess what remained after the war. So it wasn't completely obliterated, but at the same time, I'm sure that there is plenty of other stuff that he did that was subpar to what a French citizen should have done that time. I, I, I just can't fathom, though, being a part of that and trying... Like, you have to act sort of in your own best interest to some extent, though, right? Well, I mean, he did save 
one of the I know, but I just mean like even if his his other behaviors were not, if they were frowned down upon, it's like the dude probably thought he was going to get murdered all like left and right. And so it's hard to say like what's like treason versus, you know, what's like, all right, we understand you were put in a tough spot. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a that's a double edged sword. There, you know. Yep, it's difficult it's, to. It's talk really about. crazy. Um, okay, so what's your what's your like favorite part of the book? Oh, I'll tell you in a minute. Oh, first I want to talk about how. Well, this is not my favorite, but I thought this was very cool. Okay. So when they were trying to ship French wine to German soldiers, mm-hmm. they did it via train, and <clears throat> like they part of the book is about this guy who was in charge of these shipments like for the train and like his letters to like whoever was in charge in Germany and things like that and all these French revolutionary people who were part of the resistance yeah so revolution is not the word the French resistance okay okay they would steal the wine so the wine would go missing they would from also from the trains or pre-boarding the from the trains okay they would also or pre-boarding okay like they would also replace them with like really shitty ass like wine like Good. something like so that was another thing that people were doing a lot of the, the vineyards they were like get getting their worst wine ever and like putting them in nice bottles and basically saying like this they were trying to, to pass them. it off and sometimes the germans caught on to it and sometimes they didn't they were doing like their own fraud which yeah. is horrible yeah. right now and we know that there have been more recent cases of fraud in the wine industry but that is like fraud to protect yeah the integrity of the vineyards mm-hmm. that are there go french resistance they would pour out the bottles and like put it in something else and then send empty oh, bottles i see so but they were doing this like at the point like either at a stop during yeah. on the train or like before like you said like when they were packing up the train yeah. they would have people that were in charge of doing this Wow. That yeah. is ballsy shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. My favorite story. Are you right. ready? I'm ready. I'm okay. sitting. I'm they sitting. start talking about this in the beginning of the book. And I was like, what are we talking about? Are you were you just like were you just like strung for like the whole book? Okay. I'm just gonna this is like the, the beginning. First page. Okay. The steel door would not budge. French soldiers had used everything from lock picks to sledgehammers in an effort to open it. Nothing had worked. Now they decided to try explosives. The blast shook the mountain peak, sending rocks and debris cascading to the valley below. When the smoke and dust had cleared, the soldiers discovered the door was slightly ajar, just enough for Bernard de Nanacourt, a 23-year-old army sergeant from Champagne, to squeeze through what he saw left in speechless. In front of him was a treasure connoisseurs would die for, half a million bottles of the finest wines ever made, wines such as Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Yep. Uh... Let's see. Chateau Mouton Rothschild, mm-hmm. Chateau Latour. Okay, you get the point. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So, Some of the most expensive wines to date. What is that? Do you know? No, I don't. Okay. So, do you know where Hitler retreated? No. Where his, like, home, like, his, his like, magical retreat was? I do not. Okay, it was in the Bavarian Alps. Okay. And it was called Berchtesgaden, something like that. Okay. Um... And this is where he basically, he had something called the Eagle's Nest. It was at the top of this mountain. It was a private mountain top retreat where he, like, that was supposed to be, like, his, he gave it to himself for his 50th birthday. What a It fucker. cost, like, I don't know, 32 million, whatever, dollars, whatever. 
at that point. Um, Marks, Deutschmarks. Whatever. A shitload of money. Yeah. Okay. So he bought himself a fucking mountain. Yeah. Okay. He also had an elevator. Hashtag first world problems. Okay. Go ahead. He also had an elevator that went up the mountain to the top. And you know what they had to do? It took him three years for workmen to cut the shaft out of the solid rock. Yep. To make the elevator. Yep. Because it was all hand done. Yes. This is where they stored all this amazing wine. Wait. That they had stolen. The Germans or the French resistance? The Germans. The Germans fucking took the wine and brought it to this lair. This secret lair. Wow. So all this wine that they had made them give them or buy, whatever, was there. All this wine. All this like amazing, amazing wine. There was also other things there. Gold. I mean... Oh. Money. It is wasn't it just like wine. All the pictures. Do you remember that movie, The Monuments Men? I never saw it. Oh, they. It was. I believe that it was talking about how during the war, during World War II, because the Germans were also stealing a bunch of paintings, like famous yeah. art. Oh, right. And so the Monuments Men were actually charged, I believe, with going in, gathering all of these very famous paintings and going to store them mm-hmm. secretly. But for those that did not, did not escape the hands of the Germans. I would imagine that those that also would have been um, stored in this, you know, private secret layer in yeah. the mountain top or mountainside. Yep. Wow. Probably. Wow. Um. So. So when the war ended. Yeah. Or when he not when it ended, but when basically when it ended, when he killed himself, all that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was a race to recover this wine. Between the Americans and the French. (gasps) And I think the English maybe were, I don't know. But anyways, the French got there first. And they talk about like the story about them trying to get there. And April 22nd, 1945. So that's when they got there. This elevator had been destroyed. Because when the Nazis retreated, they destroyed it. Oh Um, my God. They also, I mean, they destroyed a bunch of stuff, right? So they didn't even know if they were going to get there and the wine was going to be intact. It's a risky business. Yeah. Because they didn't know (laughs) if they had destroyed it. So when they got there, they didn't know how to get up to Eagle's Nest. Because this elevator. The one mode of transportation that they Mm -hmm. knew existed. So they had to climb up this mountain to get there. Which is like 8,000 feet or something in altitude. That's not not high. Right. (laughs) Okay. So, they get there, and they describe this about when they opened the door and found all the wine. And it's pretty amazing, because they weren't sure what they were going to find, but then when they opened the door, they found cases of wine from floor to ceiling. At least half a million bottles. And that is the excerpt that I read to you. Oh my god. And it was one of the guys from one of these five vineyards who went in there, right? Didn't you say it was one of the young guys? The last oh, name that you read. Yep, yep, champagne guy. Yep, yep. He was one of them, but he, but there was, I mean, it was like a whole group, obviously. Then they had to figure out how to get the wine down because there's no elevator. So they got creative. They strapped cases to stretchers and lowered them very slowly from, from the top, from the peak. <gasps> and then when they got to like the base, like off the peak, then they um, carried them down mountain, down the whole mountain to tanks and trucks and loaded them there. Oh my God. Because mm-hmm. they had to scale it mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. 
So they put the French <laughs> flag. I just like can't fathom that. It's like just for the level of effort that it entailed to get these back and just like getting them and the fact that they're still ex- in existence. But to get them back, that sounds very expensive. I don't think they gave up shit i mean that wine it was like it was like they're so rare this is more they even talk about how this was more valuable than gold yes it's liquid gold guys it's liquid gold yeah so even though our liquid gold is red (laughs) so they put the french flag on top of eagle's nest uh americans got there like very shortly after and they were upset because (laughs) <laughs> of course, damn Americans. Of course, we were because um, the French were still under an American command, so they made them put the American flag up. What? Yeah, but they didn't care. So basically, <laughs> they were like, "Whatever, we know who got here first. It's fine." Um, and then everyone was just like popping bottles and getting wasted. That sounds celebrate. like that sounds magical. None of the war part sounds magical. No. It's the celebration, the post-celebration, the mm-hmm. post-recovery celebration, if you will. That's incredible. So it ta- So this book literally takes you from before the war, the yeah. start of the war, yeah. through the end of it. Mm-hmm. And these interviews were all conducted relatively recently. This book, when did it come out? 2017, 2016? Um, yeah, I think something I know like it's that. recent. I feel like I'm that was my favorite story. part, honestly. Um, it well, was, so it well, starts. No, it starts you there. Two thousand two. This was in two thousand two. Mm-hmm. That's when this book oh, came out. Oh, yeah. you know what? The book I was just reading was from okay more recently. Yeah. Okay. There's also because we love maps. There's a nice little map in the beginning of this book oh, of France you, you in, 19, really in 1940 with all the wine regions. It's oh, so I like that. It has really nice drawings and stuff. So, wow, and tanks. Mm-hmm. Saint Martin's donkey. I don't know what that means. So I think it's, I would highly recommend it. How long? It is really I mean, interesting. You were reading this for a, a while. A long time. It took like, me a long time. And I, it doesn't usually take me long to get through no, books. No, but you're like, it's like certain stuff, like with yeah. like all the like work stuff and personal stuff and whatnot. Well, it's, it's just not one of those books that you can fly through. No, I think you could, but it's not one of those books that if you're not going to fly through, if you pick it up, you're like, wait. You, you kind of have to like rewind and be like, what am I reading again? Oh, I've had books like that. You know? Yeah. And again, I think it's because they jump around so much. Yeah, so, it's definitely challenging. Yeah, I think that that was part of the, the challenge. But there's so much good information in here. It is entertaining. Um, I did learn a ton from this. I highly recommend it. I would. I need to borrow it then. Yeah, you definitely do. One other thing that I forgot to mention yeah. about that when they found that wine yes. at the Eagle's Nest. Um, the, How many people had a trip, like, go up the fucking mountain? I have no idea. I'm sure it was quite a few. But Denonacourt, sure. he saw hundreds of cases of 1928 Salon Champagne, which was, I guess, one of the best champagnes at the time. Oh, really? Um, and five years before, he was working at another champagne house, and he... Watch German shoulder, soldiers come and haul away the, these cases. <gasps> those exact cases? Yes. No and shit. that was, those were them. They found them. It came full circle. Yep. Oh, and by the way, we can end with this. Beachy Hitler does. didn't even like wine. What a fucker. What a motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, of course I mean, there's other reasons. 
Of course, we all know this, but it's like, why? That goes to show, like, he understood the value of wine, even Mm -hmm. though he didn't like it. And so he knew that that was going to fucking hit hard where the French were concerned. Well, and he knew he could make money off it. Yes, exactly. What a dick. I mean, that's... For so many reasons, yeah. That's the most simplistic thing to describe him as. Oh, my God. So wine and war. Wine and war, war and wine. Hitler belongs where the sun don't shine. It's just, I think he's there. I, he, he better be there. <laughs> he better be fiery. Uh, yeah, I think that that's really interesting. I've never... I feel like in order to get all that information... Well, you'd never get that information. Now that I think about it, because they're just the stories, because mm-hmm. it's this un- these untold stories for yeah. decades. Yeah. That's really impressive. It's you, really cool. Do you know, is this Don and Petty, or Petey, are they, he's a journalist, you said, but is he like in the wine industry? I'm just curious why now, why it would have piqued his interest. And I don't know if they maybe shared that. I'm no. not sure. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. And that's fine. I just, I think it's interesting. Those people who go into journalism, weird things pique their interest. And so it's oftentimes, you know, they can easily go down a rabbit hole. I mean, we can easily go down rabbit holes, yeah. right? And so if that's their job, I feel like they're more inclined to do stuff like that. So maybe that's how that all sort of started. Yeah, they do in the end of the introduction, they say, although this is a book about wine and war, it is not a wine book, not really. Nor is it a book just about war. It is about people, people who indeed exude wit, gaiety, and good taste, and whose love of the grape and devotion to a way of life help them survive and triumph over one of the darkest and most difficult chapters in French history. That sums it up. So, yeah. Um, I think we need to go back to the wine. Yeah. Now it's that it's... much better. It is drastically different, but I'm still convinced that there is... The aftertaste is like potpourri. It's like... So interestingly enough, it's interesting that you say that. Interestingly enough, it's interesting that you say that. What am I saying? <laughs> um, <laughs> Why is it interesting? Did I miss something? <laughs> what What's happening? Uh, it is interesting because they describe it as having a bouquet of dried flowers and a finish that is plush and opulent. Okay. I mean, opulent to me is not the right descriptor, but I do feel like this is smooth. It's not quite as smooth or silky as I would expect for a Merlot, right? You know, sometimes... But what Merlot... Are you talking about Merlot from California? Because it's different. No. I mean, don't shut up. But I know what you're saying. (laughs) You know what? It's a very valid question. (laughs) Merlot itself is supposed to be one of those silkier wines. It's not like a very tannic wine. It's a very smooth wine. It has dark berry flavors, dark chocolate. I just don't feel like I picked that much up on this wine. I mean, I'm getting some fruits. I'm getting like, I don't know, maybe... Oh, this is a tough one. I don't know if it's like a red plum. Black currant. Black currant, sure. I'm getting... It's like that fruity, but like concentrated... It's almost like a dried fruit, not yes, like a fresh yes, yes, fruit. Yes, it is, but it's also, I feel like the body of this wine, it's still pretty light. Mm-hmm. I don't think, like, I wanted I this to be a heavier wine. Agree. Just by what our preferences are, but I expect, I wanted this well, to be more like... Well, and you expect like, that from a Bordeaux, honestly. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it, though. I love it for the fact that it has, like, heritage in Bordeaux and that it, you know, it's not an expensive bottle. I am curious if like it would pair better with some sort of food. Like, although I'm just not 
sure what. It has a higher acidity than I I mean, we're eating some pretty good cheese here, so. It's true. But I am thinking, so I just popped in my head because we are recording this on Bastille Day. Happy Bastille Day. Happy Bastille Day. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking, like, immediately escargot just popped into my brain. I'm like, oh, it has higher acidity, so maybe it's going to pair better with, like, some of those, like, more buttery stuff because. What about mushrooms? Well, it's pairing really well with this cheese that you have. Which is, what is it? Champignon, which is Champignon mushroom. mushrooms. Yeah. And I forgot, dill maybe? I don't know. I don't remember, but it's, yes. it's yummy. Mm-hmm. It is good. I think that's my favorite cheese that it's paired with that you have here. I don't, what do you think about it? <laughs> I ran out. I need a little bit more, I think. Oh my God, I can't believe we did not fill you up, Jamie. Thank you. That's good. Get that aerated wine. I agree with you. I think that it needs to be, I think that this would be much more pleasurable with the right food. It's almost like an Italian wine to me. I was just going to say that. I was like, oh my God, I feel like I need to eat this with like pasta or something. Like, I feel like this is like Italian wine where you need some food with it. Like exactly. I was just thinking that. So it's, it's German, it's all the romance language, isn't it? Or maybe not all of them, but French, Italian, Spanish. Yeah, yeah they're romance languages. It is much lighter than you would expect. From yeah, the color, think, from the, and the, the blend. And the, the lingering taste. Like, there's yeah. not a lingering taste by any means. No. And I, again, I think that that is something that is lacking when you, when we're talking about heavy Merlot, mm-hmm. right? I do think that, and this is what's surprising to me, is because it says, like, to not drink until 2019. Yeah. Right? But mm-hmm. I think that's even late. I think this might have been a little bit better earlier because I think that it's taking on a ton of dried fruit and dried floral characters. And to me, again, that makes it so that it's not really a, a drink by itself kind of wine. The winemaker notes say black fruit, blackberry, black currant, blueberry aromas with toasted notes. Authenticity of the terroir through tannic structure and fruitiness of the wine. Nature of sandy, gravelly soil acts as a flavor enhancer and is found in the minerality of this wine. Minerality, sure. Fruitiness, I just don't think it, that's like the primary. I no, feel like we're I, getting a lot of tertiary stuff here. Yeah, I agree. I also agree with the dried flowers. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there is like an umami. A little note. bit. Almost like a balsamic type of yeah. thing. Yeah. So, I don't think it's a bad wine, um, but I just think it needs like an oomph. It needs an oomph. I like it. Qu'est-ce que c'est oomph? So, yeah. <laughs> Wine right. and more. Wine and more. I appreciate you sharing. German. I don't know. I don't know how they want us to pronounce this. I want to say German. I also want to say Saint Germain. Like Saint Germain, like the elderflower yeah, liqueur. That stuff that is has good. Been, that shit's amazing. I anyway, do love that stuff. I know. That with champs. Oh, I don't like champs. Though. I know. But man, let me tell you, that with champs is Thank you, Sarah, for reading the book and for sharing. Well, thank you for listening. I, I, you know, I think if anyone has any interest in what anything that we said today, pick the book up, um, check it out for yourself, or go to the library. And some people have read this like all in one sitting. I, I think it was just me, part of this. You know but. what? Hashtag life happens. It's fine. Don't worry about it. All right. I Thanks won't. for sharing. Cheers to wine, but not war. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. 
We'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dvpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers from the girls of DVP. DVP.